Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Before you turn to Matthew this morning, will you, for our introduction, turn to Acts chapter 19. And I was thinking about all of the strange stories that are in our Bible, many of which you might not even be aware. We have an interesting topic today that our Lord is going to be teaching to his disciples and the crowds as we enter Matthew chapter 23. To prepare our hearts and our minds for that, I want to take just a minute and I want to go to an interesting account in the early establishment of the church in the book of Acts. Now, you do know that the book of Acts is not spelled A-X-E, right? It's not a tool where you cut down trees, but it's A-C-T-S, as in short for the actions or activities of the apostles in the planting of the churches. As Christ has gone back to heaven after his resurrection, the disciples are now missionaries. They're missionary apostles. They are filled with the Holy Spirit after Acts 2. And they have tremendous authority and power in the ministry for the establishment of local churches throughout this part of Asia and Turkey. And... um, There are just so many crazy things that happened. Everywhere the Apostle Paul went, he started a riot, basically. He preached Christ, and people started throwing bricks and things like that. He got beat up over and over. And in Acts chapter 19, there's just a really interesting story that illustrates a really important point by way of introduction of our message today in Matthew 23. And it's the story of these guys called the sons of Sceva. I don't know if you remember these guys or not, but they are really interesting. And the most bizarre thing happened one day. Um, It says in verse 11 of Acts 19, if you're there, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So to grab attention, to authenticate the message, and to build up the Apostle Paul with authority, God had given him healing power. He had, he had the power of an apostle, somebody who had been with Christ, like Peter had earlier in Acts, and they could, they could do miracles. They could heal. They could speak prophetic words. Uh, remember, the New Testament is not written yet, and this is a special time we call the apostolic era, and there's tremendous works going on as authenticating signs for the gospel. That the message of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is real. Look what it says. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. It's just craziness. I remember hearing on the radio as a younger boy, a a radio evangelist, begging the radio audience to mail in their money and that they would receive this special miracle cloth and that if they had their miracle cloth, they could apply it to whatever part of their body and pray in faith and God would heal them. It comes from this example right here. Now, they were doing it to fundraise on the radio. They had no ability to heal people. And they were using it as a ploy or as a tool. The Apostle Paul was so filled with God's power at this time that even... Even cloths or hankies that people would touch against him and then touch against their ill loved ones would bring healing. It was just craziness. It's just something to behold. And it says that even diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. This was a time when evil spirits were rampant. and It was very common for people to be possessed by demonic powers and authorities and spirits. 
In some parts of the world today, it's still that way. I believe personally that it's a growing element in our own country, largely fueled by illicit drug use. I believe that satanic activity and illicit drug abuse go hand in hand. I have biblical support for that. We'll not get into that right now. I just had an interesting conversation with a young law enforcement officer in our church who has uh, been in law enforcement for about 15, 20, almost 20 years already, but he's still a young man. He said to me this Wednesday night as we were talking, he said, PV, I want to tell you, I said, he said, I, I believe that I encounter demon-possessed people every week in my work. He said, I will walk in a room and other officers will be in there restraining somebody, and when I walk in the room, they will go berserk the the perpetrator will go berserk and they will wail and they will scream and they will flail about. I said, why do you think that is? He said, as soon as I start to talk and I start to talk to them about why they're doing what they're doing, they recognize Christ in me. He wasn't boasting at all. The demons know that this man is in Christ. I believe that story. I believe that. I've seen some of that with my own eyes. And so these evil spirits were coming out of people. And then verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, the ESV says, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So what you had was... You had these Jewish exorcists. They were evidently priests of some kind, religious leaders of some kind. And they were involved in exorcising demons. And on this particular day, they had watched the Apostle Paul with these handkerchiefs and the miraculous apostolic authority that he had exercise demons out of people. And they decided on this day that they wanted to add to whatever their exorcism ritual was. And evidently they must have had some success or they wouldn't stay in the business or else it was a money-making gig for them. People would pay money to try to exercise demons out of their loved ones. And so this day they decided to invoke the name of the Jesus that the Apostle Paul talks about. And look what happens. So there's this Jewish high priest named Sceva who has seven sons who were involved in these exorcisms. But the evil spirit, verse 15, answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who in the world are you? I don't know who you are. You're a nobody when it comes to spiritual leadership. You are a fake. Notice what happens then. It would have been really something to see. The evil spirit answers in that way. Verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The NIV translates this in a little more descriptive way. He said, He beat them bloody and ripped off their clothes. So this demon-possessed man had so much power that he whips the fire out of seven of these sons of Sceva, and what enraged the demon is that they were false prophets. What an incredible story. Now it illustrates, as we turn to Matthew chapter 23, the reality that the, the matter of false prophets or phony spiritual leadership is not a new problem. In fact, even in our Old Testament, we have some remarkable stories of God dealing with false prophets. God clearly instructed through Moses that anybody who was a false prophet was actually to be killed. Anybody who invoked God's name falsely 
and out of self-gain and self-motive, mostly false prophets are driven by what? They are driven by the opportunity to manipulate the spirituality of people to reach their emotions so that they are willing, A, either to come under their authority because they are power mongers, or B, to give their money because they are lovers of money, these false teachers. We could stop right now. I know we could. Take the microphone and we could go out in the audience and you could tell stories of your experiences in places and times past where you have dealt with false prophets, false teachers. I'm sure of it. Or stories you've heard. We've all heard of them. Some are really famous. And they spent thousands of dollars on air-conditioned dog houses and airplanes and hookers and their kingdoms crumbled. And they were really, really well-known people. False teachers, false prophets, driven by pride and by arrogance and by self-seeking motivations. It's exactly what our Lord is dealing with in Matthew chapter 23. And let's turn our attention. If you're new to us, we're working our way through Matthew. Our Lord has just concluded a very confrontive time with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He is now done with them. He's only 48 hours away from the cross now. It is the end of his earthly ministry. And he turns his attention, chapter 23, verse 1, to the crowds and to his disciples. And he begins to talk about the scribes and the Pharisees that he has just dealt with. He's not talking to them. He's talking about them to his disciples. And it's essentially a warning passage. Now, chapter 23 is a really interesting passage, and the, the balance of the passage is going to be our Lord pronouncing seven judgments upon these Pharisees and scribes that he's just been dealing with. And seven times he's going to say, woe unto you. Now, this is not like you're riding your horse or running, you know, driving in your buggy and you say, whoa, Nellie, and you shout at your horse. It, like, this is like... Woe unto you, as in you are condemned. The death penalty is upon you. Woe unto you. We're not going to get to the woes today. Introducing the woes, our Lord gives us some insight about what phony spiritual leadership looks like. As a result of that, we can look at the converse and we can conclude what authentic spiritual leadership should look like. And that's what I want to do for our message today. We're going to look at three points that are triads, each have three parts to them, that capture the first five, six, seven verses of what defines phony spiritual leadership. I hope you'll pay attention. We'll then go back at the end of our message and we will rattle off 12 characteristics of authentic spiritual leadership. Now, if you're sitting in your chair saying, and you are, I can see you sitting in your chair, you're thinking while you sit in your chair and listen to old Pastor Van that... You are not a spiritual leader, so, man, I should have stayed home and watched TV. You need to know that this applies to all believers in Christ because God hates pride. And God lifts up those who are humble of heart. You will never be a successful Christian if you are proud, self-seeking, or arrogant. And all of us struggle with that capacity to do that. And if we will be humble servants of Christ, then he'll lift us up. So there's a broad range of application. You might teach school, and you're a school teacher. You're a leader. 
you need to be a humble leader. If you're a man and you're married, you're the head of your home, you need to be a humble man and lead well and so forth. There's application for all of us. Let's look at our text. We haven't read this text yet, have we? Have we read Matthew 23 yet? I just blanked out. And I'm only halfway through three. Okay. That's what happens to me with three services. I can't remember if I've done what I thought I did. The Jesus, then Jesus, verse 20, chapter 23, verse 1, let's read our text. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. And they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor and the feasts at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What an interesting passage of scripture. Let's turn to our notes and let's rework our way through this passage, making application to our living on a daily basis I know that you know what fake and phony mean, but I decided to look them up in the dictionary anyway, and I I thought I would include it in the notes. The first part of our message, we are looking at the basic profile of a phony spiritual leader. Phony means fake. And if you look it up in the dictionary, it adds to be marked by empty pretension, and I wasn't sure what that meant. So I looked up pretension. I mean, I thought I knew, but I didn't know for sure. So to be phony is to be a fake. And to be pretentious is to be someone who puts on a display, a show. You're all about the show. That's the kind of people that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the Pharisees. Those are the religious leaders of the day. He's talking about the scribes. The scribes were the theological experts of the day. Many of the Pharisees were scribes, but not all scribes were Pharisees. And they knew the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the writings of Moses, the historical books of Israel, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. They knew the Psalms, the poetic books, Job. They knew the minor prophets, the major prophets. And in fact, I would dare say that, that any one of them probably knew their Old Testament better than this entire room of people put together. They had most of it memorized. They had invested their entire life all day long in the study of the works of Moses. Moses and the Old Testament writers, and they knew it intimately, and they were very, very proud of their biblical knowledge. Scribes were the theologians of the day. Pharisees were kind of the uh, ritualistic uh, feast leaders and leaders at the temple, and they were abusive of power, and they were a corrupt bunch. And these are who Jesus has been fighting with. 
And these are the ones who are going to nail Jesus to the cross because they refuse to believe that Jesus was greater than Moses. They refuse to believe that he was the Messiah, the Christ in the flesh. And they thought, they thought that that was heresy for him to claim to be God. It was heretical and her heresy in this time was punishable by death. And so Jesus turns away from those Pharisees and scribes. He's done with them. He looks, he looks at his people, his disciples, and he says, I want to tell you something. When you encounter these guys, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. This, the word seat there is the idea of a, a special chair that is established. Some of you will recognize in higher education, certain departments have a chair position. He is the chair of the philosophy department. It's that kind of a chair. It is the highest point of authority in the department. A chair of theology often is named after a great theologian. You're going to sit in the, you know, in the chair of theology named after Charles Ryrie or some theologian or C.I. Schofield or whoever and Bancroft. And it's a chair of theology in a seminary. It means that you're like a, an honored lecturer. And you have a high position. And when you're the one who is appointed to that chair, you're, it's pretty prestigious. And Jesus says they love to sit in the chair and be esteemed as the, as the authority on doctrine and theology. And then he says a most interesting thing. He says, so do and observe whatever they tell you. All right, wait a minute. I thought these guys were bogus fakes and frauds. Why would I do what they tell you? The only conclusion that I can come to, and the, the commentaries agree, are in agreement, that what Jesus is pointing out here is that as far as their teaching is from the scriptures, pay attention to the scriptures. Do what the scriptures say. And as long as they're opening up the word of God and they're reading the scriptures, okay, pay attention to that. But, then he warns them, look what it says, do not do the works that they do. Because why? Because they are fakes, they are frauds, and they're all about the show. The first thing I want you to see in verses 3 and 4 is that they will, number one in our notes, be characterized by duplicity. They will be characterized by duplicity, inconsistency, and double standards. Now, uh, it's kind of repeating myself, but it's to drive home the point. Look what it says, verses 3 and 4. Do observe whatever they tell you, that which is consistent with Scripture, but not the works that they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with even their finger. Remember how they added, we've talked about this in the past, when Jesus was confronting them earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, and how Jesus was confronting them and teaching them, and they would say, you know, they, you weren't to, to work on the Sabbath. Not only were you not to work on the Sabbath, but you, you weren't to lift anything that was heavier than four pounds, and you could only do a Sabbath day journey. You had to count your steps, and you could only do so many thousand steps. Other than that, it was considered desecrating the Sabbath because it was too much work, and they had all kinds. It never ended. How you were supposed to wash your hands, and we've talked about this in the past. I've read from you lists of things that is just craziness that they brought upon to burden the people and the point is they preached these things and they didn't even practice them themselves they were characterized by this hypocritical duplicity inconsistency and double standards notice the picture of our screen today of our sermon title the idea here is no 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 the the, the screen of our sermon title and notice that he's holding a mask that is the personification of a hypocrite 
It's the personification of a hypocrite. It comes from the old Greek theater where they would hold up masks on a stick and they would hold it in front of their heads. Now this one, these are blank ones, uh, you know, or like Freddie, whatever his name was, but they, they hold these up. But if you're in a play and you got a mask on a stick and you're this person and you act it out and you act it out, then you drop it and you pick up another one and you become this other person and you drop that and you pick up another one. The, the word for those masks and changing roles is where we get our English word hypocrite. Somebody who changes who they are, not genuine. Secondly, I want you to see in verses 5 and 6 that they will be consumed, these false, phony spiritual leaders are consumed by prestige, public image, and posturing. Public image and posturing. Notice verses 5 and 6. Not only are they unwilling to even lift a finger to be engaged with the people in the things that they have taught them, but they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. They are all about public image. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts. And they had a lot of feasts, and they had a place of honor at the table, and they would make their entrances and sit at these tables, and everybody would notice who they are, and the best seats in the synagogue were reserved for them. Do you remember in some of your churches growing up in the more traditional, even in our traditional Bible churches, they had pulpit furniture? Uh, I love our pulpit and our communion table. Perry Jackman made these in his basement shop, and he did a beautiful job. We used to have pulpit furniture, though, matching oak. And I'm not necessarily against it, but they would have these big chairs. Remember? The most uncomfortable chairs in the world. They were oak off and oak and tall, and the backs were straight, straight up and down. And remember, there would be kind of a little chair right here. Right? And then right here, there would be a great big chair with arms. And the top of it was carved out and big and tall. It had red velvet. Almost all of them had red velvet. And then over here was a little chair, right? The big chairs for the big cheese, right? Even in our Bible churches, they love it. Here, don't sit in that chair, man. That's the pastor's chair. All right? Don't sit in that chair. That's the pastor's chair. Reminds me of my friend Alonzo Puller. Pray for Alonzo and... Teresa, his wife, had a tree go through their living room ceiling last night, but all is well in the storm up in Frederick in one of the houses that they own. Um, Lonzo always says to me when, when he's around me and somebody brings me cookies or something, and that's a good thing to do to the pastor. Um, <laughs> Lonzo always looks at me and just shakes his head and grins and he says, it's good to be the pastor. It's good to be the pastor. You got the big chair for the big cheese. That's what Jesus is talking about. Who in the world do you think you are? He talks this funny word here about these phylacteries. Now, Aaron, please. Um, on these phylacteries, now this comes from the Old, teaching, Old Testament teaching of Moses. And what it is, is it comes from specific passages. There's four places in the Old Testament where Moses commanded them to, on their foreheads, and on their arm or their wrist or their hand to bind the word of God. Bind it to your forehead. Bind it to your hands. Now, we would teach that Moses was not literally teaching about binding it in, in a physical form. And you can double check these. It's Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13 verses 9 and 16. Don't turn there right now. But you can write it down. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 8 and Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 18. Deuteronomy 6, 8. Deuteronomy 11, 18. Four different times he says, 
Bind my word to your forehead. Bind my word to your hands. The idea is that everywhere they go, when they sit up, when they, when they sit up, when they sit down, when they move forward, when they lie down to rest at night, their lives are to be governed by the word of God. And so what they did then is they made these boxes sewed with 12 stitches for the 12 tribes of Israel, and they put Deuteronomy 6 passage, the Lord your God is one God, and so forth, love the Lord your God with all your heart. They put it on a little piece of paper, rolled it up, put it in the box, sealed the box, tied it around their head, so that wherever they went, the word of God went in front of them. All right? So it's like legalistic letter of the law, it's... I mean, you got this box of the Word of God, but are you living the Word of God? No, they're not living the Word of God. And not only that, they would tie, wrap cords and tie a box to their forearm because they needed to use their hand. They put it on their forearm so that as anywhere they reached or touched, whatever they touched, they did in the will and Word of God. Now, that's a good practice, but tying the Word to your arm, it wasn't the point. And what they did is they made these boxes bigger. You see? They broadened their phylacteries and made this big old box so that when they came in, they got their big phylactery box of the word, I am so spiritual. Uh, You know, I don't know what we're capable of doing to elevate, to magnify the things that we do. In a lot of ways, we love public image, don't we? We love public performance. It's always a battle with the flesh when you stand before people to have the right motives, to have a truly humble heart. Thirdly, you'll notice they will be concerned about titles, public recognition, and open praise. Notice what it says in 7 through 10. They love the places of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And then he gives this interesting instruction. Do not, do not let people call you rabbi and do not be called father. That's a problem with certain religious groups in our country and around the world. There's a direct disobedience where we insist on people, you should call me father. You should call me reverend. No. What does he say? We're all brothers. We're all part of the family and we all have the same father. Who do you think you are? But they love to magnify their public image and sit in the places and posture and, and, and make sure that everybody knew how important they were. And they loved open praise. Oh, Rabbi, and they would teach their people certain greetings so that people would loudly recognize them publicly. Hmm. Just an incredible lack of humility, a lack of Christ-centeredness. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor who is Christ now. I don't think it's wrong to have an appropriate level of respect between a student and a teacher and to say Mr. or Mrs. or this is my principal, this is my instructor. I think that the heart of the teaching here has to do with the one who was receiving the praises saying, I insist that you call me this. This is the person who's always credentialing themselves, who wants to make sure everybody knows how many doctorates they have and how much of the alphabet they can spell out at the end of their name. And it makes you want to gag. We're just humble servants of Christ. And we're all brothers. So we can just flip it now and we can go to the converse and we have at least, um, you know, depends on which clock you're looking at, we have about a minute and a half to do 12 points here. (laughs) We can do it.
Yes, we can. By the way, you might pencil in under number three, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul speaks there of appropriately recognizing and giving honor to your spiritual leaders in an appropriate way. All of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is an example of the spirit of grace with which we should all minister to one another. You read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this week for your homework. Let me rattle these off. You're going to see how this is all just the converse. And I wanted to just be really practical. So where the Pharisees did not do, they didn't live out what they taught. So then authentic spiritual leadership, number one, their lifestyle is consistent with their teaching and preaching. Wouldn't you agree with that? If you're an authentic spiritual leader, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a school teacher, You better be convicted when you're teaching your students to do something that you're not living out. With the responsibility of preaching and teaching comes the responsibility of living. Otherwise, get out of the business. Their lifestyle is consistent with their teaching. Number two, they refuse to ask their people to do something they are unwilling to do. Do not be a teacher or a leader and then ask people to do something that you haven't done a thousand times already. I often say that to the interns when they come in early in the spring. I say, now you're going to end up doing things and we're going to say, hey, go down to the pavilion, empty the trash and clean the toilets. And we might not go with you that time, but I want to tell you I have cleaned those toilets a hundred times through the years of ministry. We're not going to ask you to do anything that we don't do regularly. Thirdly, they serve under the watchful eye of their heavenly father and no one else. That's at least our heart motive, isn't it, leaders and people that are growing in grace? We all recognize the battle with the flesh, but we want to have a sense of a heavenly father's watchful eye upon us. Let me take the time to read a great story about a West Virginia preacher. It goes way back to Phil Donahue days. Do you remember Phil Donahue? And he was a reporter for CBS. It was before his famous talk show was even on. It says, in the early years of television reporting, Phil Donahue covered a mine disaster in the Appalachian Mountains. There he overheard a country preacher offer a very moving, comforting prayer with an anxious family. Donahue approached the preacher and asked if he would repeat the prayer so that he could get it on film. When the minister refused, Donahue said, hey, I'm a TV reporter. I represent 260 stations. Millions of people will be able to see you and hear your beautiful prayer. The minister again just said, no, sir. Perhaps you don't understand, Donahue added. I'm not representing some local TV station. I'm with CBS. The whole nation will be able to see this. The old country preacher repeated, no, sir, turned his back and walked away. Donahue later realized that he had witnessed something called integrity. He wrote, the man wouldn't showbiz for Jesus. He wouldn't sell his soul for TV, not even for national TV, not even for CBS. Don't you love that old country preacher? He's before the Lord. I don't care about Phil Donnie. I don't care about television cameras. I work for the Lord. That's it. They reject, number four, putting on a public air of self-importance and self-adulation. Number five, they are embarrassed to go first in line. It's embarrassing. Pastor, you go first. I don't want to go first. There's so many. You go first. They readily offer their chair to others. This is all a reaction. You can see it in the text, can't you? 
We have to keep rolling. They minimize titles and they do not draw attention to their credentials. They constantly point people to Christ as our teacher, not themselves as the master teacher. They are well aware of and live out the upside-down value system of Christ. There it is. Let your eyes go to verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Notice it is your personal responsibility to humble yourself through the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, under the authority of the Word of God. It's an upside-down value system that Jesus had. They do not live for or thrive on the praise of people. Number 11, they are able to find great satisfaction in serving even in obscurity. Even in obscurity. What would happen if it became the delight of all of us to serve only before the watchful eye of our Heavenly Father and that even the most obscure tasks were our delight as servants of Christ? What a place this would be. What a home we would live in if dads were like that and moms were like that. They live and long for the eternal praise of King Jesus. They live and long for the eternal praise of King Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is the only phrase that should drive us. So leaders, leaders, this is the kind of individual God uses. Be that kind of person. Church, This is the kind of leadership God blesses. Don't allow any other leaders in charge of this church. Drive them out with sticks if you have to. Christian, this is the model for true greatness for all of us. Teens, this is the kind of Christian you want to be and the only kind of person you want to marry. One who's a servant of Christ, who lives for the praise and glory of their Heavenly Father. Will you stand and close in prayer with me? Oh, Father, we have this system here where we're always in a hurry. And so I would ask that even as we depart in a hurry to vacate these chairs, that in our minds and hearts you would slow us down this week. And that you would slow me down this week. That we would apply this message, Lord, to all of us. Our pride and our arrogance surfaces so easily. And we so easily live for the public eye. So from the youngest to the oldest here, Lord, would you just help us to be joy-filled slaves for Christ. Living only under your watchful eye. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go.